Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Sevi Petrus, CEO of Priority Life Care. The Fort Wayne, Indiana-based company has largely focused on middle market senior living, with 34 communities, including 17 new additions, formerly operated by Eclipse Senior Living. To Petrus, the big challenge of meeting the middle market is creating a product that is both affordable and appealing to the baby boomers. And in that regard, she believes the industry still has a lot more work to do. I think that we need to have a better middle market, almost transitional for them, and whether that's active adult or some combination of independent and active adult, that is probably not providing massive amounts of care, but is significantly less expensive for them to be able to afford it, and that it can look very different. But before we get to that interview, I'd like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. Visit SeniorHousingNews.com to view this year's winners. And now, here's my interview with Sevi Petrus, CEO of Priority Life Care. Sevi Petrus, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. So I know you guys are a busy company. I wanted to just sort of start with an update on where we are with COVID. You know, as a country, I think we're all not exactly where we had hoped we would be at this point in the year, but I've talked with some operators who are still pretty hopeful about where things stand. So, you know, now that we are here in the middle of January 2022, what are things like in terms of COVID at Priority Life Care? You know, what are some of the challenges and and what do you feel good about right now? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on and happy new year Um, and happy new year with a brand new, I don't know if it was Christmas or New Year's present that we got a new variant of COVID, (laughs) like a whole new year, a whole new way to deal with COVID. You know, so I I have a a group of about 11 operators that I work with and Lynn Katzman recently mentioned our operators collective collaborative uh, recently in one of her her write-ups about where she dealt with a fire on top of everything. And and we just kind of took every, each other's temperature. And obviously, we're all gearing up to go to ASHA in a couple weeks, which is kind of the first conference of the year, for, for usually typically for, you know, most of us. And, and this year, thankfully, you know, they're so far, knock on wood, they're still doing it. But, you know, really generally what we're seeing across the board as of, you know, what is it, January the the 13th, <laughs> And they were seeing too earlier this week is that the number of positives are high. We do have a number of positives, but we don't have our residents going out like they were the beginning of last year, middle of last year, even honestly towards the end of last year. We had a lot of people that were going out. Now it is more our staff are testing positive, maybe have some sniffles. The, the same is typically the case with our residents. It's more like, very minor colds. And it's not to, in, in no way am I trying to lessen, you know, the Omicron um, variant. And there still are a lot of very sick people in there. You know, there still are high hospitalization rates and, and certainly there still are people dying, but it's not at the rate that it was, at least looking at our communities. We don't have the amount of people going out. In fact, most of them aren't going out. Many of them don't have symptoms or they're very, very light symptoms. So it's it's interesting because we are in, you know, 13 different states to see how differently still they are handling it. In in some states like Pennsylvania, it's county by county. Maryland the same, but we're really only in one county there. So I, I see some of the states are kind of getting to the place where, hey, the CDC is le- less in these rules. 
you know, we're kind of lessening them too. But then there's some that are still just super, super strict where it's, it's incredibly difficult. You know, we operate the very first of its kind for an affordable LIHTC building, assisted living in the District of Columbia. They're kind of middle of the road, you know, like, and, and we had our first case of um, COVID since we had opened the community in, it was from a test of a resident. We were probably kind of one of the first where it was like, hey, here's how we're going to handle this. And it was not as restrictive as things had been, which really to me in October, November was a sign that we're understanding. And and this is what we sat down with them. They're infectious um, disease control people. And they said, we understand that this is what it's going to be going forward. So we're trying to figure out how to keep everybody safe and yet not be so restrictive to you that you can't conduct your business and our residents can't live their lives. So that to me was hopeful considering it was the District of Columbia, which is also mandated the vaccines. And, and so we're kind of starting to see that trickle through. But I do think that, you know, if you don't know somebody who just recently had COVID or currently is about to said, I think I'm about to test positive or you yourself haven't, I mean, it's just around the corner, unfortunately. Also too, you know, maybe this is a good thing that it's coming to something our bodies are getting used to and accustomed to, and it will become, you know, hopefully not as deadly eventually as the flu because the flu is still pretty deadly but perhaps more in between a a common cold and a flu. Yeah, I hope that that's what happens long-term too. And your your words ring true about knowing people with COVID. I, I know over the past month or so, I have known so many people who have tested positive. I have been fortunate that I have not, but... It's you're right. It's 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 all over the place right now. On top of all of that, you have to worry about recovering occupancy. I remember when we talked last year, you guys were making some progress. You were seeing increase coming back to life. This was, I think, in in February of 2021, so a while ago now. Um, I'm assuming that much of that has translated since into higher leads, move-ins, you know, occupancy later in the year. So I wanted to check back in now that it's 2022. Where are you at with your occupancy recovery, and where do you feel like you're trending as we move? deeper into 2022? You know, it's kind of interesting um, where we had made bigger strides in some of our portfolio, they were hit slightly later and then were later to come back. And then we got hit in a couple of those sections, like with a, with a one-two punch from COVID and then got it again, you know, still when it was when we were dealing with the Delta, which was highly deadly and, and, and very robust. And, and so you know, there are parts of like, for instance, Pennsylvania, where we have our largest um, portfolio, you know, there are parts of Pennsylvania that we've recovered very, very quickly and very well. And then there are parts of Pennsylvania that we've really, you know, continued to kind of struggle along. But, you know, what I, what I do think is is interesting to note is that Indiana, you know, you're straight down the fairway Midwestern state, Republican-led, you know, very much um, never going to adopt a, you know, a, a mandate for a vaccine most likely and, you know, restrictive yet understanding. We filled a brand new building in the midst of COVID ahead of schedule, which was pretty impressive. It's, it's in Indianapolis, which is highly competitive, you know, and um, so I think that kind of spoke volumes to when you have communities in the right place needing the right type of services, you know, that goes back to your fundamentals where it's all about your research and geography. So I credit the developers, you know, there on, on that community and, um, and our team's ability to really push through every and all barriers and obstacles during that time, 
you know, with full lockdowns and um, COVID positives and lack of staffing and, you know, the team really, really band together. So, you know, and the same as the case in DC, you know, we're, we're filling up at a very rapid rate. We did find at the beginning of the year, like we would have some leases signed. And then, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to sign my lease and pick my unit, but I want to wait till after the holiday. And then after the holiday hit, then it was like, oh, well, you have positives in your building. So I don't really want to quarantine. Um, so then those move-ins are pushing a little bit further out into like February, just because they want to get through the two-week restrictive time period, which you can't really, can't really blame them, um, a family member or a resident for that matter. But we definitely have seen, I'd say, a 10 to 15% uptick in most communities in terms of just inquiries. Where we've seen a shift in general is that there are less inquiry to tours, you know, like getting people to come in. You're getting lots and lots of people asking, and some of them may even select their unit, et cetera, without coming in just because it's so need-based, particularly those on the memory care. But whereas we used to have a lot more looky-loos, I would say, who are going to come in and do those tours, you're having a lot less of those. So your your move-in to tour ratio is significantly higher because you're just not having as many people coming in and window shopping as they used to do. That's interesting. I would assume that window shopping would be easier if I wasn't having to actually go to a community and step foot inside of it, you know, if I was able to see it virtually or something. So that's And they and they're totally doing that. Like they're doing the calls and we're giving out a lot more information than we ever did in the past. You know, like in the past, the always, you know, we came from the mind, hey, you don't give out the rates. You need to get people in you know, to give out the rates. And I do think that the paradigm has shifted a little bit more into the like multifamily world where we're placing all the pictures of the communities online. You can virtually tour. So they're making decisions in some regards before they're even speaking to us to say, you know what, this price point's probably out of my out of my loop or, hey, these are probably going to be too small. So I'm not even going to inquire. So I feel like the the quality and 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 I think as an industry we're doing a much better job at utilizing, you know, technology and the internet and and SEO, but that also I think goes with the fact that, you know, our target markets are now the baby boomers who are extremely tech savvy. You know, they're used to shopping for things. They're used to com- doing comparison shopping and we're also having, you know, Gen Xers are starting to help their baby boomer parents, you know, identify things. So the shift is, I think, twofold. One, as an industry, we're starting to get with the times. And two, you know, we do have a client base who are a lot more tech savvy and used to doing some research there. So I want to talk with you about this new Celebration Villa brand. Uh, just as by way of background, I know it was launched when you guys took on the former, the 17 former Eclipse properties with Ventos. We wrote an article about that recently. I'm curious, what's going to define this brand and what will this look like and how are you going to market this to residents? Isn't it the funnest name? It was my idea. But um, <laughs> but honestly, like it came to me because it, it really is about a celebration of life and life for each of us and what that celebration is, is different every day. It goes back to what our our mission is, which is to support independence. And, and we do need to celebrate things. And I think that if COVID taught us nothing more than being in person to experience things and celebrate life, like there's nothing more important. Like nothing takes the place of something in, in person, you know, like an actual hug, sharing a meal, listening in person and seeing and experiencing a concert, you know, like, oh, those are the things we just were like, 
you know, really, really vying for as, you know, part of our, our human condition. So that brand specifically came out of the fact that these are Ventos's buildings. And as that shift from Eclipse came, they really wanted to let each of the regional operators kind of create their own brand and vision for each one of those. So if we were to do, and we do have two other communities, but they're in South Carolina with Ventos. But if we were to do, you know, more with Ventos, that would be our question. Hey, would you want us to, to just roll this into a celebration bill of brand? So that is specifically Ventos's. And if we did more things with Ventos, which we would love to, then that would, we would ask if they want it rolled into that or if they just wanted to keep that and we'd create a different brand if it was, you know, perhaps a different portfolio somewhere else. That makes sense to me. So in other words, maybe maybe no immediate plans to roll out more, more sub-brands across your portfolio or something, at least not right now. Correct. Yeah, like I read about Discovery has a couple sub-brands and I know that, was it Merrill Gardens? We're doing some different sub-brands. So our sub-brands are typically more owner-based so we really don't like what's it'll say like a community by priority life care, but they're all specifically named according to what our different owner bases want. Got it. So I know that also when you took on those communities that you had actually created a team with the purpose of supporting those communities. So tell me more about that. You know, what does that team focus on? How do you support these communities now that you've taken them on? And I guess also, is this a temporary effort aimed at getting these stabilized? Or do you think that this is a team that's going to continue to manage this almost as a portfolio or something? Yeah, we almost... So I guess where we would say we're kind of falling in line with some of those sub-brands is the same thing. Like we kind of almost have like a subsidiary that's supporting these communities. And because of its interesting dynamic of having um, certain regional people that were over those communities, and some of them have been with the communities since prior to Eclipse, we felt that it was a good move for us to provide some stability to the team. I mean, I I got to talk with and meet every single one of the executive directors and several of them had been there for like 20 years. So it's scary when there's a change and they had been with the previous owner for a very long time. And so then with the change from from Eclipse, which was big, big news, coming in and, and working with a smaller operator regionally based, you know, we wanted to provide them some stability for the family members, for the staff, which is most important who are, you know, communicating that information. So that was really part of it. And plus, like, we just really lucked out. There were some really amazing people that were there. And it gave us an opportunity to kind of like um, bump up some other people who had been in the area and market. And we brought on a couple new people as well. But we've been really fortunate with some really amazing people that were there and who were willing to stick around and and work with us and join our team and and continue to support the communities there. So we we really kind of, that's really where it is. And we really probably will keep that. If anything, we would add to it, you know, continue to evolve in whatever is best for the portfolio. So operating in that sort of middle market senior living space, uh, there's been so much discussion and so much thought about how you do that and how you do that effectively and how you can do that and also get your margins right and all of that. So tell, tell us more about your middle market model, you know, how does it work? What is it predicated on? And, and I'm also curious, what are, you know, if I may ask the question, what are margins like for, for your middle market model? Well, I think margins for everybody right now are extremely compressed, whether you are middle market, high end or anything in between. And, and I do believe, you know, everybody just did a pretty significant rate increase to current existing residents as well as market rates. And across the board, we did on average between six and a half and seven and a half percent, I would say, somewhere between there. 
We tried not to go out too high because typically what happens is then you have to come back down and make some concessions. So we tried to get something that was reasonable um, that we wouldn't have to go back and recalculate and formulate our actual rates. Now, um, do I think that's the first of the big jumps? I do not. I think that we have one more year of really, you know, un, unseasonably high rates. Normally, you know, we're all doing like three to percent, like maybe three to five percent if you have if you skip a year or something. But going anything above five is is pretty unusual. It's not market, but everybody was doing it, and for the most part, very few people, including ourselves, got much pushback from the from the family members. You know, when we were speaking and doing all of our town halls with the Celebration Villas, you know, one of the big things that the family members wanted to know is, hey, we know labor's tough. And hey, we know that you guys are struggling. Are you increasing people's wages? And I'm like, I'm so glad you brought that up. We are. In fact, they hadn't been given raises in like over a year. So we immediately got the approval to increase them. But I, I do want to tell you, because the second question they want to ask is we're increasing rates. And my first question is like, has your Starbucks price gone up? Yep. Has your milk price gone up? Yep. So are your rent prices. You know, like, so I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad that you mentioned it. But, you know, and that's typically the reason that we're doing it is, is one, like we need to be able to be competitive. We want to be able to offer, you know, competitive wages and benefits. And that's one of the biggest reasons. So I think that we're going to see a compression in our, in our margins in general for the next two years. So I think once we start to get into 2020, 2023 is really probably when we're going to start seeing those, those types of margins come back at a large scale. But generally for our, you know, our middle market products, I mean, you're still seeing margins above the 20, somewhere between 25 and 35%. It's going to be rare. You're going to get into the 50%, which is probably more typical in some of your like class A brand new builds, extremely high markets. You're, you're very comfortably hitting your debt service coverages when you're looking at margins that are 25, 35, 40%. So those are pretty typical of what you can expect. The biggest thing with middle market, being able to offer a good affordable property and, and programming is that it, typically a lot of times it's buying it at the right price point, you know, and, and understanding uh, what can I charge given where the marketplace is and how much is all this going to cost? You know, obviously I think Unless you're utilizing a program like a LIHTC where you're getting, you know, the equity and, and other portions of things are coming from um, some type of a tax credit, the cost of construction right now is just astronomically high just simply because we're all dealing with, you know, lack of goods and or, you know, supply chain issues. So there are a lot of these particular types of projects that we're working on in the LIHTC world. And they do utilize um, less conventional financing, like bond financing, sometimes HUD construction loans, which can give you a lot more flexibility than your typical, you know, construction loan, where they're, you know, one going to require a significantly lower loan to cost, and they're also going to require, you know, a a much higher or constrained type of um, ratios. So. Those are those are some of the ways that you can do it. You can do it with compressing your, you know, your general overall mortgage costs and or if you're buying a, an existing community, making sure that you're buying the building at the right price point, understanding the type of capex that would need to be put into it. So, I I, I don't want to put you on the spot with this question, but as you were talking, uh, one of the questions I've been asking myself is 
Does the industry need to rethink what its margins are? I'm not saying they need to go higher or lower, but this is a period where I've heard from so many operators who say, this is a time where we can change things. This is a time of renewal in some ways. So some of the old models, we can tweak them now. Do you feel like that needs to happen with margins? Do you feel like the the margins are are in a, a you, you made a good point earlier when you said about you know paying workers more. I think that's that's a trend we're seeing across the industry. So I guess I'm I, I'm curious. I mean, does that mean maybe accepting a lower margin in the years ahead for an investment in your workforce or something like that? I'm just curious to have, know if you have any thoughts about that. I, I think that's a fantastic question, and I think what that goes back to are what investors expect from their IRRs, because that's really what's driving the the need for X margin. You know, it, it, it's really about what is my IRR going to be on my investment? So, and there are several investors out there. There's lots of different private equity shops that have all, you know, significantly lower requirements for their return on investment. So they can do one of two things. They can either pay significantly higher for the type of asset that they want, understanding that because it is more expensive per unit, their return is going to be lower, but they're going to, but they're also going to need to have those margins be a certain level to make up for the cost per unit. Or you can say, I'm going to pay the right price point so that I know that because I know my margins are going to be lower so that I can still get the the IRR. So it really just depends on the money. I mean, the banks really have very little to do with it. That's really just debt service coverage, right? And and those are and those are negotiable. Those depend on the type of money that you're borrowing from. It depends on the type of length of, you know, borrowing of the money, but really it, it goes back to equity. It, are they are they short-term holds? Are they long-term holds? What type of equity is it? Is it family money? Is it pension fund money? And all of those things have different parameters, dynamics, and that's what's driving the need for those margins. I want to I ask you one more, one more question about the middle market, and then I want yeah. to move on to staffing. One of the things that I've been curious about, you know, a few years ago, I know we were all thinking about the middle market as it related to the big opportunity ahead, you know, millions of people we're going to be basically priced into this. I think COVID is only accelerating those trends. I guess as you look across the industry, now that we've been doing this for a few years and thinking about this for a few years, you know, I guess where do you where do you see the industry in terms of its middle market efforts? Do you feel like there's enough being created to meet that big demand? Or do you think the industry still has a lot more work to do to truly meet the middle market demand? Oh, we have so much work to do. Uh, one, because most people don't believe that you can make, you can, you know, get the right IRR or the right margin or, you know, and you can't make money off of it. So I, I think re reevaluating, you know, what does that look like and how do we get there are, are two very separate things. You know, one, I'm always amazed at how many times I speak to, you know, people in my age group. Um, I recently had a friend who went through, is going through trying to figure out what to do um, for her father after her mother just recently passed away. And she is, per, she was perplexed that that Medicare didn't cover any of this, and that it's not that easy to get on Medicaid if that's the case. You know, if they're in figuring out how they spend down and what that means and what that looks like. So part of the problem, I think, is we as a country have done a very poor job at helping our our citizens understand what the options are coming up, and the mass majority of them are middle market. I mean, let's be honest, like. There aren't many people who can afford to pay six, seven, eight thousand dollars a month to live in the, you know, in a in a in a nearby area for them, just like they did in their, you know, 
in their in their current home. And, and perhaps while home values are in exceptionally high prices and you can garner the highest price you can, it still doesn't necessarily mean that they baby boomers notoriously didn't save. Baby right. boomers notoriously took out two and three mortgages. Baby boomers, you know, got a transfer of wealth from their parents and then they blew it on a cruise and a Harley Davidson. You know, <laughs> so I mean, we're looking at a very different population coming up here. There's more of them than there ever has been. So probably for dumb luck, everybody will do well. But the difference is, one, they can't all afford seven, $8,000 a month. They had less kids than their parents did. So there's less adult children to help, you know, flip the bill. Our generation had, had kids later. So we still have kids at home, you know, that we're taking care of. And our baby boomers, they don't want to live with us. Like they don't want to be burdened. You know, they want, they, and they don't want their care to look anything like it looked like for their parents or their grandparents. So we're dealing with a whole different bag of worms in terms of trying to figure out how one, do we make it affordable for them? And then most importantly, how do we make it attractive to them? Because, you know, will there always be a place for assisted living and memory care? A hundred percent. But people, as we've seen in the last decade, it's taking them longer and longer and longer and longer to need those types of services. People are living well into their 90s and their hundreds, and that will continue to be the case with the boomers. So I think that we need to have a better middle market, almost transitional for them. And whether that's active adult or some combination of independent and active adult, that is probably not providing massive amounts of care, but is significantly less expensive for them to be able to afford it. And that it can look very different because we also know home health isn't an option for when you're truly, truly need help. That is a little bit of a help to get you by for a short period of time. But if you think you're going, if you can't afford to go into the private pay you want, you cannot afford private duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's a whole nother management thing. Like you got to have somebody managing that. Like everybody thinks, oh, I'll just hire these private duty people. Will you? Like, you know, how hard was it to have a nanny in your house or a babysitter in your house at all times? Like mm-hmm. somebody has to manage that. So I think that we need, we need some type of advocacy service that really does help prepare our boomers and the Gen Xers and the Gen Yers for how to set themselves up appropriately for what they're going to want and when they're going to need it. Like I love the CCRC, you know, the the entry fee models, you know, those address a lot of that, but very, very few people, you know, can afford to to buy into those things. So I think we have a big problem. I think we've only started to scratch the surface with how we address it. And 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 it has to be twofold. One, how are they going to afford it? And two, how is it going to appeal to them as something that they want? Well, well, thank you for sharing all that. That's great. You know, I'm glad that you put so much thought into that. I've I've thought about a lot of the same things. So it's I, I always love to discuss this. I could probably Me spend too. another 30 minutes talking about the market, but we got to move on. Um, okay. Let's let's talk, let's talk about staffing. That's the big the big challenge. It seems like these days, uh, amid the other big challenges. Uh, so, how are things on the staffing front at Priority Life Care? I've you know anecdotally, I've heard of operators who were unable to meet the demand that was coming in because they couldn't find the staffers. I think that was also on the extreme end. Mm-hmm. But I guess tell me more about sort of the, just the challenges that you're seeing bringing workers in, what that's doing to your operations, and then what you expect to see kind of through the rest of the year. 
It again really depends on the market. Like I have some markets where we've had like really strong people there a long, long time and and adding incrementally to the people that we've need to replace or fill in, you know, hasn't been a problem. And then we have pl- we have places that were chronic issues prior to COVID that just got worse, you know, during that time. And and I think one of the things too that everyone is kind of like, you know, the big question is where are all the workers? You know, and I and I think that the the simple the simple answer is if you just look at like the statistics, like boomers are coming to the retirement age. COVID exemplified that for some of them. They were just like, I was going to retire at this point, and now you know what? I'm I'm good. I'm done. Like this is a little bit too much for me. So we've had a number of boomers who have decided to take a slightly earlier retirement than they maybe haven't had anticipated. And then Gen Xers, there just aren't as many of us. So most people think like, oh, we're lazy. We're like this lazy generation. Not true. There's just literally 11% less of us. So if we're looking to replace a boomer who was a, a top level leader, or even if they were in at the hourly level, there was somebody who had a lot of experience and and could be relied upon, replacing them with a Gen Xer is, is it's virtually impossible. There, there really are just fewer of us around to do it. So now you're looking at the Y generation, which there's maybe a million less of them than the boomers. They're just not ready to take those roles yet. They're just, they don't have enough experience. They, they're, they're not eligible for those roles unless you as a company are willing to go in and say, hey, I'm going to train this person up because I see that they have they have the qualities that I need, but maybe not the experience. So I think that that's some of the lack. And then we also have a completely different generation of workers that are around. And that includes all generations. It's also the first time that we've had three or more generations working in one specific place at one time. I mean, it, it truly is, it is historical because Boomers are working longer than our previous generation. And then we also have like people coming up slightly earlier. They're working in like they're 18, 15, 16, 18, 19. So we have a very large array of people that are working. And we're trying to typically give them a one size fits all when it comes to benefits and packages and and schedules and you know, job titles, we're never going to make one person happy if that is the case. So we're trying to adopt some, not a one size fits all when it comes to benefits and it comes to staff from a, you know, hey, this is your, your job title position. This is your job title description. These are the benefits that you have an option for. It's A, B, C, or D, or none of the above. You know, so we're trying to be creative in terms of saying, I know that you would like because you're used to going to one place all the time. This is where we would like for you to do it. Great. You can do that. You would like some more flexibility in your schedule not being the same every single week because you have these little kids. Great. Well, then we're going to fill you in with this, this, and this. So we're really trying to meet our, we're trying to meet our workforce versus making the workforce meet us. And that's typically how we've always been. Here is our box and you fit in it. But you have all of these different types of like options for people to go work when and where they want. And why are we like being so like archaic about trying to make them fit into it? So we're really trying to take that into consideration. You know, our HR is called it's called corporate soul. We don't call it HR. We we believe that, you know, referring to that is just where people think that they're going there to get hired and fired. And we have such a different approach to our corporate soul. Like we believe that those are, there are coachable moments and that you're going to get, you know, a dev talk because our mom runs our corporate soul instead of a TED talk. 
and, and that you, you know, and that every performance improvement plan is an opportunity to really bring the best out of somebody. You know, Bobby, my brother always likes to say, it's not a death sentence. It doesn't mean that you, you're going to get fired. It means I'm failing you as your leader and as your team player and as your director, and you're failing us as well. So where do we find that? And, and we get it. Like COVID has been a tough couple of years for everybody, particularly our people, you know, that are on what we like to call the front lines. And I saw um, a friend of mine um, on Facebook from, from Ohio. She's a nurse in a hospital and she posted something that I thought really rang true to me. She's like, she said something that about the CDC or, you know, the government or, you know, are, are saying, you know, referring to our nurses and our doctors on the front lines, you know, as if this is a war. Well, typically whenever you're, you know, whenever you're talking about being on a front line, that implies that there are reinforcements behind you. And in many, many situations, that is not the case. And so we have been striving very hard at Priority Life Care to make sure that our teams on our front lines at the community level do know that they have us as a back, that we are the reinforcements, that the corporate team at Priority Life Care is, and and we have, I mean, I can't tell you how many, I mean, I've been on, on site at the communities, our regionals have come in to serve dinner, to help cook, you know, to give our executive directors and our dietary staff and our nurses, you know, time off so they can go home and see their families. And I don't know, you know, where this starts to slack off. Um, You know, I don't know where it starts to become easier or if they're, you know, I've heard all kinds of stuff like we need to utilize more technology. Sure, we do need to use more technology, but unfortunately we haven't been very successful in working with many technology companies that understand you need to make their jobs easier and not more difficult. And those are some of the technology is just so burdensome, you know, for our staff to be able to utilize it to get one extra little thing out of it. You know, we have to go back to the basics. And there is a company that that I'm working with and I'm really excited about. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about them yet. <laughs> um, it, but it's just so basic that I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, something so simple as this can just take a very minor thing and make perhaps just a little bit easier for our for our teams on at the building level and and give our residents a little bit more feel good like they're just going to feel it a little bit more independent and they're they're going to feel they're going to feel a little better about themselves and then that's in turn going to give our staff a little bit of a break as well like i think we need to quit thinking so big like robots need to deliver meds <laughs> i totally agree and i love that idea but we we also need to just come down to like the basics and and in the company it's it's just clothing like it's something we do every day we get dressed and we get undressed and it's adaptive wear clothing interesting adaptive wear clothing and it it really um, is and that's why i got like super excited about it it is an area where i've heard other operators sort of talking about i have not heard of a company you know working with a, a clothing company before so that's that's unique uh Sevi, we we have maybe five or so more minutes left so i want to get your take before we end uh, uh today on just kind of the future you know what you can expect to see the rest of this year so uh, it seems like we're kind of at a crossroads i mean i guess you could you could say that really at any time during covid it's felt like but right now it does it does also feel like we're at a crossroads you know with the the variant and 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 the full year ahead so I guess as you look ahead to this year, what are you worried about? And also, where do you see the, the biggest opportunities? Let me start with opportunities. <laughs> I think I see continued opportunities in ways that we can improve. I think that we, I think that COVID has given us an opportunity to step back and take a breath and say, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong? 
I think it's become very, very clear that as a country, not just our industry, but as a country, we've been doing a lot of wrong stuff when it came to our workforce. And with with the boomers kind of retiring and Gen Xers moving up into you know more uh, leadership roles, looking at the Y generation and the you know the millennials and the, the whatever it all encompasses, it really is truly different, and they have a different capacity and and their their views of things are different, like. You know, we have a lot of, I, I think that like we really are starting to see the true changes of with this generation coming up and then and the one coming behind it. Like they're just so aware of the need to be inclusive and the need to understand. And and I don't think, you know, and I think sometimes the previous generations would feel like, oh, you're not, you know, you need to toughen up and stuff like, I mean, I heard that a lot in the beginning of my career as a woman, you know, growing up in banking, in investment banking in particular. And, and this is, it's not about being tough. It's about doing what's right. You know, it's about being fair, um, not just giving everybody a trophy for participating. You know, it, it, I don't feel that that's what that generation is, the, the generation coming up. And I feel that we've all been really learning from them. And, and we have to understand that as the workforce, we have these problems with our workforce. Great. Well, my mom always said, you know, don't always throw good money after bad. It's, it's not that it, just, we could offer a hundred dollars an hour. If somebody doesn't want to work that position, it's not going to make them a better employee or more attuned to follow the rules and procedures because you paid them that much more. Do we have to provide fair wages? Absolutely. We need to do that. But I don't think that, and I think that that's one of the problems that we're having right now is we're so we're so eager to fill pages, you know, positions that in some respects we're throw just hey, we'll go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And in some respects, I'm not saying that person doesn't deserve it. I'm I'm sure in many many cases that they do. But I don't know what kind of at some point it has to level out, and at some point we have to understand what we can you know afford. And there's just some, it doesn't matter how much money we put on it. So I think that there is like a huge opportunity for us to figure out how to best attract people into our industry. I think that we're missing the boat on that. I think that most people think, oh, well, I have to be a nurse to do this or, oh, I have to have had that background. And that's absolutely not the case. And those are some of the things we're trying to work on too, is how do we get people who want to, who want to give more and get more out of their career and show them that in senior housing, there's a wide range of career opportunity, not just at the caregiver level, but in the back office level, in the business office manager, in marketing, in maintenance, in dietary, you know, in, in health insurance and banking and private equity. I mean, there's all these ways that are doing something to literally impact the lives of a senior every single day. So I think we need to be better. That's an opportunity, I think, that we could be do better. We're complaining, everyone's complaining about the, the labor market. And again, I just think we need to get back down to some like simple, basic types things that could, that could really make a difference and an impact. What am I afraid of? I'm truly afraid that we're, we're just, we're gonna get so tied up in our, of this stuff that we're not gonna see the forest through the trees. Certainly a valid fear, especially with so much to worry about right now. Right, there just is. I mean, it's like don't make it so complex. Like let's let's keep kind of keep it simple, and we can find solutions. The other thing too, I feel like we were so collaborative as an industry during COVID, and prior to, I felt like so many of us would just hold the cards so close to the vest, and 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 this is so important. Like for us to be able to like work together with our Gentum and Asha to like go to Capitol Hill and say, hey, 
you know, our seniors deserve this. Our employees deserve this. Our owners deserve this. Like we deserve to have some of this, this assistance as well. Like we're providing an, a much needed service. It doesn't stop. We can't have people not come in. I think that that is... I think that has been something good. And I know a lot of people are fearful that perhaps as a result of doing that, we're opening the door for more federal you know, regulation, um, which is certainly a fear. But I mean, I just feel like it would take so much for them to kind of get something like that together. They'd also have to coincide it with some way for Medicare to help you know, pay for some of this stuff too. So I mean, I, I see that. That's probably not one of my bigger fears because I play in the Medicaid Medicaid world for assisted living. So it doesn't, fear me. I'm used to a whole bunch of regulation. We have uh, just just a moment of time left. I, I always give my guests an opportunity, though, before we go. Tell us what we can expect to see out of, out of Priority Life Care this year. Uh, you know, what, what, what is on your priority list this year? I guess tout, tout anything that you wanted to tout at this point. Okay. Well, my first one is going to be Joe and Bella. Joe and Bella is the adaptive clothing wear that I am um, a part of. And actually today they sent some of their demo clothing, which are like pants and some shirts that they have been in development with to our buildings, to our caregivers. And they are having them utilize those on some of our residents And then they're going to do these extensive kind of um, interviews with them to say, hey, what did you like about it? Like, did you like this? Did it help here? Did it help there? As they're continuing to develop these products. And as a result, they're getting... And I'm super excited about this. But like our employees who got selected to do it, they're getting like a $150 Amazon gift card. Like, how cool is that? I know. I'm like super excited. But Joe and Bella, again, that goes down to just like something so simple as helping to, you know, make clothing, not just like functionally, you know, more easy, but also make it look nice so that they feel good. And it's taking into account if like they're, if they're wearing an incontinence product and if the incontinence product is dry or if it is, or if it is um, wet. So making sure that that takes into account so it doesn't look weird, it looks good and they feel good. Um, so that's one of the things Priority Life Care is working. I'm working on personally and Priority Life Care gets to, to, to be a part of. So I'm really excited about that. So you'll, we'll, we'll be talking more about that later. We've got like more LIHTC development. So like right down the fairway for our mission with um, being able to provide that affordable senior care. I'm really excited about being able to do that. I think that uh, we've been fortunate to work with some really great developers who have some really great ideas. So to have these brand new, beautiful buildings where they were built for accepting Medicaid waiver and or some affordable portion of a private pay is really exciting for us uh, because we really get to exemplify our programming. We brought on a gentleman most recently named Craig Drukande, who we worked with in our very first building that we ever had back in the day in Ohio. And he just joined us again. And since we've worked with him, he is like one of only 11 people in the world who are certified and licensed for this like amazingly helpful and insightful memory care training. So we brought him onto our team to specifically work with programming for our memory care residents and also for all of our staff to help identify and work with and um, really boost up the programming that we have. We have a program called Along the Journey, but his whole job is just going around and training our people and and beefing up our that programming there and helping our 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 staff and our our coworkers become more aware and enlightened of you know just those little things that can make like a really big difference. Mm-hmm. 
Is this, is this related to Montessori? I know that Montessori uh, certification is kind of hard to come by these days. Yeah, it's it's slightly like that, but he's got like all these different levels of, you know, specific just for memory care. So yes, it's very, very similar to that. And, um, but in he like has even taken it a, a step higher where he's a certified trainer in memory care programming and for people who are, you know, suffering with, with dementia and, and memory care and Alzheimer's. So I'm really excited about having that. Cool. Well, Sebi Petrus, thank you for coming on Transform today. You know, I always say this, but this was an especially good discussion. So I I just love talking with you. Thank you for coming on. Well, you're my very first interview or anything for the year. So thanks so much for having me on. It's it's always fun to catch up with you. And I think these were were great topics. So thanks for thinking of me. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. Visit SeniorHousingNews.com to view this year's winners. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.